beginning in verse 1. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of, sal of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Let's pray together. Lord, we do worship you now in the study of your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet us. We're thankful that, Lord, that you want to instruct us more than we want to be instructed. You want to change us more than we want to be changed. And you definitely want us to be more Christ-like than any of us can possibly uh, understand or comprehend. So we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have pliable hearts, teachable hearts, available for your correction and your encouragement and your exhortation and your instruction so that we could just not understand what your word says but actually live it and obey it and let you live your life through our lives in obedience to it. So we trust now that your Holy Spirit, that he will make application as only he can uniquely to our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that your, that your plan for our lives is to be made more and more holier and more and more like Jesus. We pray you'd set this time aside for that use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as we reach chapter 5 today, uh, we're continuing our study here, and Paul is kind of winding things down. He's already said finally, uh, but that was kind of like in the middle of the book. He takes the long way to, to land the plane. Uh, but he really is winding it down for real this time. And so he's, he's talking, as we've seen, and we need to remind ourselves, he's talking to Christians. And he's not talking to just any type of Christian. He's talking to baby Christians. I love baby Christians. I love them because they are so hungry for the truth. And I love speaking with people that are new to the faith. I just, I wish I could do that so much more than I get to now. Uh, but these new believers, these baby Christians, they had grown tremendously. Paul has already articulated that in chapter 1 and elsewhere, talking about how much their faith is, has uh, gone out and how he doesn't even need to say anything to anybody regarding their faith because of what God was working in their lives and through their lives, even at such a young age. Again, they're only about uh, probably a couple months old in the Lord. Paul was there for three Sundays, three Sabbaths rather, and then he had to leave. And then he dispatched Timothy at a later date, not too long after that, and he probably didn't stay for very long. So they were, they were new believers here. And that's going to come, uh, come into perspective when you look at the context of, of persecution and how difficult it was for them 
And that's one of the reasons why he gives them the instruction, as we've recently seen a couple weeks ago, regarding the rapture of the church. Because one of the things that brings uh, comfort to people when they're going through difficulty, persecution, affliction, is thinking about the eternal perspective and thinking about how God uh, could rescue them at any moment in light of the rapture. In chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, we were told this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as, as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he's, he just laid out, as we saw, this incredible majestic truth that the Lord Jesus at some point in time is, is going to come back and descend, not all the way to the earth, but he's going to descend from heaven and he's going to catch up those that are alive at that moment, that are believers, whenever that event occurs. And, and we're going to be caught up together in the clouds to be with him. Now, if you're in a, in a, again, if you're in a, a tribulation, if you're going through affliction, if you're going through difficulty, that would be great news. And that would be something that would bring tremendous comfort. Not only that, but he's going to bring your loved ones that knew Christ with him. And, and then we also saw him go through this incredible uh, uh, articulation of just the, the, the celebration of heaven and the victory of heaven in calling us to be with him. And so he comforted them very specifically. And so now he's going to talk about, as we get into these times and seasons and the, you know, the day of the Lord and all that, he's still going on the theme of eternal things and the eternal perspective. But this time, instead of speaking about it in the context of what we're going to experience in the rapture, He's encouraging them in that they are right with him, they're right with Jesus, they're right with God, and unbelievers are not. And thus, those that were likely the ones that were persecuting them, of course, weren't believers. And he's saying that they're going to have an end, and he's already spoken of this, that there's going to be a recompense, there's going to be a meeting out of, of, of judgment on those that are, that are persecuting them. And so he wants them to know this is where these people end up. But also, these, the end time scenario and what's going to be happening uh, regarding the end times is supposed to produce something in the life of the believer, something very, very healthy. It actually is supposed to affect how we live as believers from one day to the next, one hour to the next. And so he gets to that in verses 1 and 2, and he says, First of all, he establishes what they already know in verses 1 and 2. He says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief, as a thief in the night. And what this reveals to us is that Paul did some extensive teaching on end times when he was with them. Now, that's kind of odd in a way to us when we think about it, because when we teach a new believer's class, we're not necessarily talking about end times. I mean, there's some of us in the body of Christ that don't even think end times is important even for mature believers. 
To say nothing of what it would, the priority it should be in the context of teaching new believers. But God had a totally different set of priorities related to what the, what the content should be that these new believers should be receiving. Because he's saying, you know what, what I have shared with you already. And you know these things. You know these, the, the times and seasons. You have no need that I should write to you because I covered these things when I was with you. That's the, that's the obvious uh, uh, meaning behind it. And, and we've also seen that, every, that at the end of every chapter, Paul brings up something related to the coming of the Lord. At the end of every chapter, you can go through on your own time and look at the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, he talks about it there. In every chapter, he talks about something related to the coming of the Lord, which tells us it's, it's way higher in priority for the Lord regarding what the Lord thinks should be uh, instructed to new believers and mature believers regarding end times. That it's not some peripheral thing that is optional, and we could either get into it or not get into it, and it's encouraging if we want to get into it, but God doesn't really care if, how much we explore. No, that's not the case at all. He wants us to know regarding where we're at in the prophetic t- uh, framework of everything, and waiting for that imminent return of Christ at any time is supposed to produce something very healthy uh, in us. And so he says, for you yourselves know perfectly. Now he emphasizes you yourselves there. It's emphatic. He says, it's you, you, I don't have to say this to you, you already know how well you've been taught regarding these things, that you, you know that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So Paul, he shared those things with them when he was with them, and no doubt Timothy backed these things up, maybe even added to these truths uh, when, when he was with them. So he says, you perfectly know all about this, and he says that this will happen uh, like a thief in the night. And so the big question is, okay, what is the day of the Lord? And that can be, I don't know if you've ever done a study on the day of the Lord, that could be uh, a very substantial time commitment regarding looking at all the scriptures that uh, have, contain the phrase day of the Lord. It's about 30 times in the Bible. And, and we see that in the Old Testament. It's actually most of the time it's in the Old Testament, not most of the time in the New Testament. And the, the overarching meaning behind the day of the Lord, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, is that it's God's time. It's, in other words, God's intervening in something. That's the common denominator with every time that he mentions the day of the Lord. It's, first of all, it's not one day. It's not one 24-hour day. It's a period of time. It's like saying um, uh, this, this section of time of the Lord it's saying that he is taking over. He is doing something. He's intervening in the lives of, of people. And, and usually it has to do with judgment, even in the Old Testament. When he would judge some people group or he would judge the Jews regarding their sin or their idolatry, he would, he would describe it as the day of the Lord. And much of what's in the Old Testament is, is referring to what's in our, yet in our future regarding the day of the Lord and the judgment that's going to come on this earth. We've already talked about that a little bit when we talked about the rapture, that there will be a time of judgment on this, on this world. And, and during our, um, you know, in other words, God's time is going to happen. Man's time is right now in the sense that he has been allowed to oversee things and rule and, 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 and self-govern. But there will come a time where God intervenes and it stops becoming man's time. It becomes God's time where he uh, meets out his judgment on this world for their uh, Christ-rejecting actions. 
uh, and in the sense of denying uh, the Messiah. And so we see this begin uh, at the, at the rapture. After the rapture happens, the day of the Lord, that whole season starts and goes all the way through. And he's, and he's judging, he's judging, he's meeting out uh, wrath, his wrath on this Christ-rejecting world. So that's the context. And really, when you look at the day of the Lord in Scripture, you need to look at what's the, really the immediate context there. And that helps unlock kind of the meaning behind it. But it's never a good thing and it's never something that anyone should desire. And so what Paul is saying is he's, he's saying that this season of judgment that's coming upon this world, it's not, it's, it's not going to happen in a predictable way as far as the world is concerned. They're not going to know that it's happening. Because the chrono- chronology is this. You have the rapture, which, which just happens in a moment in time. And, and, and it happens before the seven-year period that happens that's known as the tribulation. And that trip, seven-year tribulation is divided in two parts. The, and the second half of that uh, seven-year tribulation is called the Great Tribulation. So the, and, and I believe it happens uh, before the seven-year period begins, that rapture of the church. And for one of the main reasons is, is because I believe Scripture really makes it clear. But there's also another reason that it, it coincides with the Jewish wedding, where the, 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 the man would be wanting to marry this woman. He'd go to her house, and he would um, want to propose, and, and that would kind of uh, corresponded with the incarnation of Christ, where he came to this, came to this world. And then he would, he would uh, um, you know, become engaged, and, and that would be, uh, you know, in line with kind of the cross and how we're engaged with, with uh, Jesus now, and we're waiting to, to, to come together at the rapture. And so, and th- this, this man would go back to his father's house. He would add on to his father's house. He would add on to the, because they kind of lived in close together. He would add on to the, and prepare a place for his bride. And the bride would be waiting. She wouldn't know when he was going to come. She'd just have to be ready. She'd be waiting and watching, and then he'd come back, and, and then he would take her and to be, uh, you know, with his family and so forth, and they would, they would celebrate for seven days. And we're told in Scripture there's going to be a wedding supper of the Lamb where we celebrate. I don't know if it'll be all the entire seven years. I hope it is. I can eat a lot. You know, I mean, hometown buffet goes out of business sometimes when we get near it. Uh, but, I, you know, it's a time of celebration. And, and what we looked at a couple weeks ago in the context of the rapture is that God's looking forward to being with us at that rapture more than we're looking forward to being with him. That's why he goes through all the effort to write down all the, the, the verbiage of, of the trumpet sound and the, and the dead in Christ you know, coming first and all this. He wants to show us how much he's excited about it and how victorious he is related to it. And so I believe it does happen um, before uh, the seven-year tribulation starts. And so he is coming for us. But then the Antichrist comes on the scene because we're taken out of the way. And he signs a peace contract with Israel for seven years. And then in the middle of that seven years, he breaks that peace contract. And so what Paul is getting at, he's already explained to them, and he said to them, uh, you, need to, you need to understand these times and seasons. And evidently they knew exactly what he was talking about. Uh, so often we talk about the, you know, the signs of the times. What are the signs of the times? That be- has become really popular. But there are a lot of things that show us that his second coming, seven years after the rapture, is getting closer and closer. And you can look at Matthew 24. 
And you could read about all these things that he says is, is going to happen. There's going to be a one-world government. There's going to be a one-world currency. There's going to be a, a confederation of, of nations that come out of the old Roman Empire that we see in Europe right now. And so eventually that will get scaled down to ten rulers that oversee that area. You see the massive unbelief that's going on in the world. There, there's a falling away. There's, a, I mean, men be lovers of themselves. There's a whole thing in Timothy about all the things that have to happen before the second coming of Christ. And what Jesus said is that he said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up, for your redemption draws near. And so the, the old illustration is during the fall and everything, and you start to see Christmas lights, you go, wow, I can't believe Thanksgiving's getting closer. <laughs> because they put, they put the Christmas lights up and the decorations up so often before even Thanksgiving comes. So if Thanksgiving is before Christmas, if you're seeing Christmas lights up, how much closer are you to, to Thanksgiving? And that's kind of the same thing. We're seeing all these things start to happen. We start to see the, the beginnings of these things and the world coming together and the world willing to give up sovereignty. Nations are willing to give up sovereignty because of two reasons. Because of their debt. That's why the, those, those nations in Europe have given up their sovereignty in many ways over to the overall, you know, kind of United States of Europe, given up their sovereignty to, to, because of financial gain. And now they're having struggles financially with debt and everything. But then we have the other reason, and that's terrorism. We're, we're willing to give up all kinds of liberties now because of terrorism. And so these things are getting heightened and heightened and increasing more and more. And because of that, we are willing to lay down our freedoms more and more. And nations are starting to want to globalize a little bit and come together. And that's just the beginning. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. The church is like Laodicea, where Christ is knocking in, knocking on the door, trying to get in. Because so much of it doesn't even look like anything that he's a part of, that he's, that he's uh, leading and so forth. It's, it's, it's becoming more and more apostate as time goes by. It's just going to get worse. There's false prophets. You know, so to, to look at all these things, all these signs and all these things, is something that God wants to use in our lives to help us to have our spiritual faculties uh, heightened. And so that's what he's wanting them to do. Now, he does say, a thief in the night, that is never used of anything good. <laughs> It's never used of anything good, where, where it's, the description is that someone's going to come as a thief in the night, because when, when, when someone is, you know, has a heads up regarding someone breaking into their house, then they, they guard it, and they, they turn the alarm system on, or whatever it is. And, he, and, and so they, they, they guard and they protect, but the idea behind this is that it's going to be a surprise, that, that they're going to be absolutely shocked that this judgment that's coming, this season of judgment, this day of the Lord that's coming, they're going to be shocked that it, that it appears. And they're going to be shocked that it's so strong. They're going to be shocked that it's so powerful. And so he's saying, you're not in the dark around uh, over these things because of what I've already shared with you. Now, notice in verse 3, the, the, the mantra that people are going to be saying at that time is peace and safety. That's when this happens. He says, for when they say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The first three and a half years of this seven-year tribulation, they're going to they're think everything's wonderful. There's going to be this peace contract that the Antichrist makes with Israel. There's going to be a, a pseudo-peace that is there in Israel. It's probably going to include rebuilding their temple. 
They say now, if you go and talk to an Orthodox Jew in Israel, they'll say, we'll recognize Messiah because when he comes, he will bring peace. And when, especially if he's coming and making a, a way for the temple, on the Temple Mount for the temple to be rebuilt, they're going to really accept him. And Jesus said, I come in my Father's name and you do not receive me, but there will want, there'll, there'll come one that comes in his own name and you will receive him. So this Antichrist is going to be very, very deceptive, very, very charismatic. People are going to be just so blown away and impressed by, by this man. And, and he's going to produce a false peace. He's going to produce a false set of, of, of um, peace and safety mechanisms that, that create this illusion that everything is just fine. The Christians will be gone. The, the wickedness, will be, oh, finally we got these Christians out of the way. We don't have to hear about all this sin, this thing about sin. And we can go forward now and go to the next level of evolution uh, in the human race. And now we can uh, evolve past this whole uh, issue with, with sin and so forth. And they will love it. And so they're going to have this, this, this you know, great time of peace and prosperity, so to speak. But then sudden destruction, we're told, comes upon them. Sudden. And he likens it to labor pains. Now, I'm not going to be so foolish to talk about labor pains in any kind of context of personal knowledge, all right? Because uh, I don't. I've been through that once. Uh, and then after that, it was the C-section route. Um, and so I don't want to pretend like I know what it's like at all, women, to uh, know anything about labor pains, okay? So I just want to clear that up right away. And you're going, that's good. You're smart. You're wise. Good pastor. So... Uh, but I, but I know that they happen, can happen suddenly when it's really happening, the water breaks, and they're, I mean, it's really going. There's no turning back. And there's two ways that this is similar to this, because once you re- really reach that point, there's no turning back. And that's what is communicated here. Once that, that time comes for God to pour out his wrath, and that day the Lord is really there, and God really starts judging this world and everything. We can see it mapped out in Revelation, and we'll get to that when we, when we finish up the New Testament. But when you see it all mapped out and he pours out his wrath, there's no stopping it. No, no consensus is going to stop it. You're not going to be able to vote him out of it. doesn't matter what the polls say. God's not going to worry about where he stands in his approval uh, polls. You know, he's not going to care if every single person shakes their fists at him, curses him. It's not going to matter. It's been building, and it's been building, and it's been building, and it's going to be poured out on this world, and there's nothing that's going to stop it, just like there's nothing that can stop labor pains. But also, the intensity are are going to increase. If you look at Revelation, you look at Matthew 24, you look at how these things happen, it's just, it's like, you, you just keep thinking, it can't be any worse. The next judgment can't be any worse than this one. And then the next one, it seems to be worse. And it just happens over and over and over again. And that's why I said when we talked about this, when we, we talked about the rapture, that only 1.75 billion people are going to be left if it were to happen today, because there's 7 billion people on earth. So only a quarter of this world's population is going to be left. And every single prophecy that was ever given regarding Christ's first coming came exactly true. Not one of them was iffy. <laughs> Every single one. And there's more prophecies related to his second coming than his first coming. And with much more specificity regarding what it's going to look like. And every single one of those things are starting to form in terms of all the preconditions for those things to be uh, occurring in this world. And I'm telling you, it's, ha- it's going to happen. It's going to happen for sure. And that is supposed to produce something in the life of the Christian. That urgency that that could come at, at any time. 
He says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you as a thief. So he's saying, not only have I come and I have, you know, explained these things to you, but you're not in darkness. And there's three ways that he could be meaning it, and I'm sure all three of are applicable, talking about not in darkness. The first is not in darkness related to your sin. You don't live an unbridled life of sin, that you're not in darkness in that way. But also it could mean uh, you're not ignorant. You're not in, 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 in darkness in your understanding regarding these things. But, but I think mainly he's talking about a positional standing. Because he refers to us over and over again as in Christ. Christians are in Christ. That's our positional standing there. So we're not in the, the darkness. We are, that's not our standing in this world. Because when he says this day should overtake you as a thief, what he's not talking about is that you're going to experience it, but it's not going to surprise you. He's not saying that. He's not saying you're going to experience this day of the Lord, but it's not going to surprise you. He's not saying that. He's saying that you're not even going to be there. You're not even going to be physically present. It's not going to overtake you as a thief because you're going to be in heaven. That's what I believe he, he is saying there. And it's supposed to be an encourage, encouragement for us. Because we are not going to face this judgment. He's told us, and he's going to say it again, we're not appointed unto wrath. We are not appointed unto wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we are not appointed to that. We are not going to experience it. And so he's saying... We are something different, though. We are, um, a, we are sons of light. And, and I want to read um, a passage from Ephesians chapter 5. He says in verses 8 through 16, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. For, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep. That's important for us to hear. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but is wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So in light of what he just said in Ephesians chapter 5, let's read verses 5 and 6 in our passage. He says, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So he says some very specific things that are supposed to mark our lives. And it, those things are directly related to how spiritually perceptive we are regarding the end times calendar and what's going on in the world right now and how close we are and all these things about how he could, and our expectation that he could come at any moment. The first thing he says in verse 6 is that we're not to sleep. Now, he's not talking about physical sleep. And he's not talking about being... Um, dead, because earlier he said that those who sleep will come with Christ. That's a different Greek word that he's using here. This is talking about a spiritual dullness, and, and you're not, your faculties, your spiritual faculties are not sensitized to what's going on around, and that is a big problem in our lives and in the church in general, that we are asleep, that we're not spiritually attentive to what's going on 
around us. And he also says there in verse 6, to watch. Now that's not something that we really use, that vernacular today. We don't say watch, but it means to pay attention. It means to be watching carefully. It's kind of the imagery, and he'll get to this in a minute, but his Im- the imagery is kind of someone that's on guard for something. You know, if you're on night watch, if you've been in the military, you're in the military police, you have, you're on shifts and you have to watch. And if someone that is, so, that is not sober and is asleep is not going to be paying attention to what's going on, and thus you're in more danger. And so he's saying this is the spiritual picture that, that you need to understand. That, that you, got, you have to be paying attention to these things. You can't be spiritually asleep. Because when you're spiritually asleep, you're spiritually vulnerable. You need to have he- a spiritual heads up, so to speak, and to watch and to pay attention. But then he adds to it to be sober there at the end of verse 6. To have, to, to have our influence be fully, uh, uh, the, the influence in our lives be fully from the Lord and not dulled by anything else. And, and of course he means, you know, uh, any kind of drugs or alcohol or whatever, and that's a given, and he says that in other places. But this is, anything can dull our senses. Anything could prevent us, well, it's not just drugs or physical things. Anything could, if we allow it to, can dull our senses and not have a spiritual, um, uh, you know, kind of perspective that we need to have that will help us be fruitful in what he's called us to do that, in, in what he's called us to do. So God says, don't do that. Put on your eternal glasses. You know, these, these are definitely ready to be replaced. And I can't even, it's like when Jesus healed the man, he's like, I see the trees. You know, that's how it is. But pretend like these are end times glasses and that this represents waiting upon Christ to come at any moment, to be thinking about how he could come at any moment. Because we're watching for Christ. We're not looking for the Antichrist. People always say, you know, who do you think the Antichrist is? Do you think it's this person? Do you think it's that person? I don't know. How am I supposed to know that? He's not going to be revealed till the one that restrains is taken out of the way. And the one who's restrained is inside of me. <laughs> so when he catches us up to be with him in the rapture, then the one that restrains will be taken out of the way, and he will come on the scene. But we're looking for Christ. We're looking for him. And, and so somebody that is looking for him and is spiritually tuned into to that and watching and waiting for him and thinking about all these things, they are putting on the glasses through which we should look at our lives. It's a really important picture for us to see. Everything in our lives is supposed to be looked at through, those, through the, that lens, those lenses, the, the worldview or the, or the spiritual glasses that, that we can put on. It affects a lot of things. So we could be looking at our marriages through that lens, looking at decisions we're making for our kids through that lens, looking at our ministries through that lens. Thinking about the lost by putting on those lenses. Because we're running out of time. If he could come at any moment, at any moment he could snatch us out of here, what are the people that are going to be left behind? We're going to see in the next book that there's going to be a strong delusion that they would believe the lie. Some lie related to the rapture or, or the identity of the Antichrist, whatever, or a combination of the two. There's going to be some strong delusion. And, and so we can't assume that if they know the truth now, if they miss the rapture, that they're going to all of a sudden just know exactly what happened and make the right decision. We can't assume that at all from Scripture. So we have to be thinking about that. In any moment, he could come back. How am I blessing his body? How is the kingdom of God being advanced? All these eternal things. We can put all these temporal things on the front burner and put the, the eternal things on the back burner, and that's what he's trying to get us to not do. 
He's saying that equals being spiritually asleep, to being, not being, paying attention to what he wants to, to do through our lives because we don't have our eyes on the ball, so to speak, and we're thinking about uh, temporal things constantly. And I know that we have temporal responsibilities. I'm not minimizing those things. We, it's part of our stewardship as Christians. I'm not saying that we should ignore those things and neglect those things. But we need to be faithful to those things in the context of thinking about he could come back at any moment and what that means for the situation and what are the implications of my actions regarding the fact that he could come back at any moment. So there's, there's plenty of things in how it affects my life. Now he continues to contrast this with unbelievers in verse 7. He says, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So again, the imagery is a soldier or someone that's, that's watching, and, and he says that you have to pay attention, you have to be awake, you have to be sober, and he, and he compares us to those that are not like us. And he says, you know those people. You know the people that aren't like you, that are doing things that they shouldn't do at night, namely getting drunk, and they do things at night. I mean, when have you been into a bar in your life that's been well lit? <laughs> it's just not there. And, they, and when do people go out and party usually during the day? No, it's usually at night. He's, it's, this doesn't change. There's nothing new under the sun here. He says, you, you know that, so don't, don't, don't be like them. You're not spiritually dead. You're, you're spiritually alive. And you shouldn't be acting as if you're spiritually dead in, in having this time overtake you. You're not like that. You're not in darkness anymore. And notice he says there in verse 8, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. This is before he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. So he's already talking about the faith, hope, and love. And he's already talking, this is before he wrote Ephesians where he's talking about the armor of God. And, and he's saying you need to walk in these things. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be spiritually perceptive to what's going on. Thinking about the end times. Thinking about that Jesus could come back at any moment. You need to have, be sober-minded. Not under the influence of anything except the Lord. And that influence should be working in your life so that you could be fruitful for him while you're waiting for him to come back. Jesus said, occupy till I come. The parable of the mine is there. Be faithful with what I blessed you with. Be faithful with my resources, my time. People always say to me, oh, I'm sorry to take up your time. I don't have time. It's his time. And, and everything that I have is his. Everything that you have is his. So he's working so that we will use those things for his purposes. And he wants us to be faithful because they're not our possessions. Our time is not ours. He wants us to be faithful, faithful, faithful because he could come back any moment. He doesn't want us to be found being unfaithful when he comes, to say nothing of being engaged in willful disobedience. That's a given. But he wants us to be found working and serving and giving our lives away and being fruitful for him and loving others and preaching the gospel and doing the things that he's called us to do. But we'll do those things differently when we have the right lenses on. It'll change the way that we are faithful for a good, in a good way regarding those things. So he says, that's how, you're, that's how you're sober. Put on those things. Walk in those things. It's a protection. Our, you know, breastplates were for protection. And as we're following him and serving him and waiting and, and doing all these things that we're supposed to be doing, being spiritually attentive, there's going to be warfare. And so he knows this is how we're protected, to walk in the realities of those things, and then we're protected from the enemy's attack. And he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the context is this day of the Lord. And yes, it begins with salvation, spiritual regeneration that happens when we receive Christ, but it doesn't end there. The reason why we go up in the rapture is because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Romans 8.11 says that. So he said, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, he will likewise raise your bodies to life. So the spirit coming inside of me only happens because I've been born again. I've had a spiritual birth. And, and so because of that, that's what causes me to go up in the rapture if I'm alive during that time. But he says, you are not objects of wrath. We were objects of wrath. His word tells us that. But not anymore. Not after we become uh, a believer, we're not going to go. Some, sometimes people say, we're going to be protected through the, the tribulation. He's going to preserve us. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not a, a male Christian Jew. Because only the 144,000 male Christian Jews, uh, or not Christian Jews, rather. Well, they will be Christians. I meant virgin Jews. Male Christian virgin Jews, Jewish men, are going to be uh, preserved supernaturally preserved during that time. No, we're going to be delivered from before we even go through it. That's why in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus said to this faithful church of Philadelphia, he said, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He doesn't say, I will keep you in the hour of trial or through the hour of trial he says i will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world so we don't have to worry about that we're not going to go through it he didn't appoint us to wrath and we don't know the time that he's going to come we don't know the day the the, the day of the hour but we know it's going to happen because jesus said it would and and so we have to be waiting in expectation he says in verse 10 who, that is Christ, died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So regardless if we are alive at the time of the rapture or we're not, if we're in Christ Jesus, we're going to live together with him. Because at the time of the rapture, he says he's going to raise the dead in Christ first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. So he goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, we're not appointed to wrath, and we're not going to suffer wrath whether we are alive at the rapture or whether we're not alive at the rapture. We're, we, are, we are going to be where we're supposed to be because God has promised it. We're going to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we close, I want us to go over to 1 Peter, and there's a couple of scriptures I want us to read. Go over to the right <clears throat> a little bit. First Peter, there's a couple of scriptures I want us to read. The first one is in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1. And look, look, look at verse 13. It says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace of that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot in this verse here. We usually don't say, we usually don't say gird up the loins of anything. <laughs> what is that? Gird up the loins? Uh, and the soldiers, 
they would have to take up this outer garment and they would tie it around and put it in a certain place. I don't know where, but they put it somewhere to where they could run because their feet would get tangled up and that would be girding up their loins there. And, and everybody knew that imagery. So he's saying, Peter's saying to them, prepare, prepare for battle. You know, be sober-minded. Don't have anything that's encumbering your ability to, to wage the war there. And he says, you need to have this sobriety. Be sober. Again, don't be under the influence of anything. The influence of our indulgence can come in many, indulgences can come in many different forms. Not just substances, you know, illegal substances or legal substances. We need to be sober in every way. That means thinking clearly about the things of the Lord. Not being distracted by things that compete against our attention on the Lord. That's being sober-minded. To, to have that sobriety regarding the things of the Lord. And he says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation means unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So there's grace that we're going to receive at that time. And he, again, Peter's trying to focus us on, just like Paul is, trying to focus us on thinking about the, 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 uh, the Lord coming. And, and it's always associated with sobriety. It's always related to not being spiritually asleep, but being focused and be thinking about the things that we need to be thinking about. Now let's turn over to a couple chapters over to uh, 1 Peter 5. Because what's at risk is not just not having the right perspective regarding how we'll be blessed and so forth, but he also tells us to be sober because it makes us, if we're not, we're, we're vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So vigilant is, is to be consistent. I mean, to be persistent, consistent, to be stable, to be uh, not unstable. And to be sober again is to be clear-minded. And so there's so many things that could come in and distract us away from having that sobriety and thinking about uh, the Lord and thinking about how he could come at any moment and, and how my life you know, is, is involved in the rest of everyone else's life regarding salvation and serving and all these things. And God says, you're vulnerable when you're not, when you're not sober-minded. You're vul vulnerable. And he has a great picture, <laughs> the, the roaring lion. No one of us would want to take on a roaring lion. And that, that, that picture is pure danger there. And he's just going to devour. There's no way we can even uh, withstand that at all. Because we're just taken out because we don't even realize what's happening. And he says, be careful. Your adversary, the devil, he's, he's there. And he's, he's seeking anybody to devour. So the whole idea as we close, the whole God, thing that God's trying to focus on is having a spiritual heads up. To having a spiritual understanding and perception of what's going on around us spiritually and how that relates to the fact that God could come at any moment. To be thinking about where this world's leading. I'm not saying you have to follow the news every five minutes and, you know, tracking the latest relations between Russia and, and uh, Iran and how it all relates to Ezekiel 37 and 38. We should be paying attention to those things. But I don't mean just being obsessed by it to the point where, you know, every little thing you have to know about, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying being aware that Jesus could come back any moment and putting on those, those glasses and seeing my life through that and making decisions led by the Spirit based on that reality. 
Because that is a reality. He could come back at any moment, and he wants us to be found faithful in his eyes when he's coming back. What are we doing for him? How are we serving? How are we being led by the Holy Spirit? What's our priorities in life? Where are we spending our money? Where, what's, what is the most important thing in our life regarding our time? If other people were to be asked, what's his priority or what's her greatest priority, what would they list? These things are very important because as we, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we'll realize he's not up as high of the list as we thought he was. And I'm not preparing for to be with him for all eternity. And I'm not thinking about eternal things. And if we have a temporal perspective, we won't be fruitful. We won't be ready for him to come. And, and it short circuits what he wants to do through our lives. So it's a warning for us. It really is. It's a warning. And it's, and it's something that God comes in and says, I want to interrupt your thinking about yourself. Because all of us are constantly thinking more about ourselves than anyone else usually. And I want you to get your focus back on me and what's important to me. And that can change a lot of things in our lives as we seek him in all the specifics of what that means uniquely for each one of us. So he wants us to see that. And so here we go. We saw it. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to have spiritual eyes for what you see. Thank you, Jesus. You're coming back at any moment. And thank you, Lord, that it's always been uh, a belief from your people of, Im of imminency, Lord, where you could come back at any second. And we do say Maranatha to you. We say, come, Lord, quickly. But also, Lord, we recognize you have ministries for each one of us. And you have plans for each one of us and how you want to use us. And you have ways that you want us to spend your time and your money and your influence and all the things that you entrust us with. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, heighten our spiritual senses. Help us to be paying attention to the things that we're supposed to be paying attention to and having an eternal perspective versus a, a, a temporal one. Lord, all of us need help in that area. So I pray that you would help us and encourage us and, and, and replace our focus in the place where it should be. And we thank you for your word and how you're so faithful to show us these things. In Jesus' name, amen.